Chapter 29 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 29. On the morrow... The red breast came at noon and struck with beak and claw upon Consuela's window. At the moment when she was about to open for him, she remarked the black thread crossed upon his orange-colored breast, and an involuntary impulse made her carry her hand to the fastening. But she drew it back immediately. "'Go, messenger of misfortune,' said she. "'Go, poor innocent, bearer of guilty letters and criminal words.' Perhaps I should not have the courage not to reply to a last ado. I ought not even let it be supposed that I regret and suffer. She took refuge in the music saloon in order to escape from the winged tempter, who, accustomed to a better reception, fluttered and struck against the glass with a kind of anger. She seated herself at the harpsichord in order not to hear the cries and the reproaches of her favorite who had followed her to the window of that room, and she experienced something similar to the anguish of a mother who closes her ears to the cries and the prayers of her repentant child. Still it was not to the grief and vexation of the red breast that poor Consuelo was most sensible at that moment. The billet which he bore under his wing had a much more heart-rending voice. It was that voice which seemed to our romantic recluse to weep and to lament that it might be heard. Still she resisted, but it is the nature of love to be irritated by obstacles and to return to the assault always more imperious and triumphant after each of our victories. It may be said without a metaphor that to resist him is to give him new weapons. Towards three o'clock, Matthias entered with the bouquet of flowers which he brought each day to his prisoner for at the bottom he loved her for her gentleness and goodness. And according to her custom, she untied the flowers in order to arrange them in the beautiful vases of the Pierre Table. It was one of the pleasures of her captivity, but this time she paid but little attention to it, and undertook it mechanically, as if to kill some minutes of the slow hours which consumed her. When untying the bundles of narcissus which filled the center of the sweet bouquet, she let fall a letter, carefully sealed but without address. In vain did she try to persuade herself that it was from the tribunal of the invisibles. Would Matthias have brought it otherwise? Unfortunately, Matthias was no longer within reach to give explanations. It was necessary to ring for him. He usually required five minutes to appear. By chance, he took at least ten this time. Consuelo had too much courage against the red breast to preserve any against the bouquet. The letter was read, and Mateus returned just at the moment when Consuelo reached this postscript. Do not question Mateus. He is ignorant of the disobedience that I make him commit. Mateus was simply desired to wind up the clock which had run down. The Chevalier's letter was more passionate, more impetuous than all the others. It was even imperious in its delirium. 
we do not transcribe it. Love letters awaken no emotion except in the heart, which inspires and partakes the fire that has dictated them. In themselves, they all resemble each other. But every being intoxicated with love finds in that, addressed to him, an irresistible power, an incomparable novelty. No one thinks he is loved as much as another or in the same manner. He thinks he is the most loved, the only loved in the world. Where this ingenuous blindness and this proud fascination do not exist, there is no passion and passion had at last invaded the peaceful and noble heart of Consuelo. The billet of the unknown brought trouble into all her thoughts. He implored an interview. He did more. He announced it and excused himself beforehand from the necessity of profiting by the last moments. He pretended to believe that Consuelo had loved Albert and might still love him. He pretended also to be willing to submit to her decision, and in the meantime, he exacted a word of pity, a tear of regret, a last ado. Always that last ado, which is like the last appearance of a great artist announced to the public and happily succeeded by many others. The sad Consuelo, sad and yet devoured by a secret, an involuntary and ardent joy at the idea of that interview, felt by the burning of her cheeks and the palpitations of her heart that her soul was unfaithful in spite of herself. She felt that her resolutions and her will did not preserve her from an inconceivable attraction, and that if the Chevalier decided upon breaking his vow by speaking to her and showing her his features, as he seemed resolved to do, she would not have the strength to prevent this violation of the laws of the invisible order. She had but one refuge, which was to implore the assistance of that same tribunal. But would it be necessary to accuse and betray Liverani? Would not the worthy old man, who had revealed to her the existence of Albert, and who had paternally received her confidences the day before, receive this also under the seal of confession? He would lament the delirium of the Chevalier. He would not condemn him, except in the secret of his heart. Consuelo wrote to him that she wished to see him at nine o'clock that very evening, that her honor, her repose, perhaps her life depended on it. It was the hour at which the unknown had announced his visit. But to whom and by whom could she send this letter? Mateus refused to make a step outside of the enclosure before midnight. Such were his orders. Nothing could move him. He had been sharply reprimanded for not having punctually observed all his duties with respect to the prisoner. He was thenceforth inflexible. The hour approached in Consuelo. Even while searching for the means of escaping from the fatal trial, did not think of resisting. O oh, virtue! Imposed upon woman, you will never be more than a name so long as man does not assume half of the task. All your plans of defense are reduced to subterfuges. All your immolations of personal happiness fail before the fear of driving the beloved one to despair. Consuela determined upon a last resource, suggested by the heroism and the weakness which divided her mind. 
She began to search for the mysterious entrance to the subterranean passage, which was in the pavilion, resolved to rush through it and present herself at every hazard before the invisibles. She supposed, quite gratuitously, that the place of their sittings was accessible, when she had once passed the entrance to the subterranean, and that they assembled every evening in the same place. She did not know that they were all absent on that day, and that Leverani alone had retraced his steps after having pretended to follow them on a mysterious excursion. But all her efforts to find the secret door or the trap door of the passage were useless. She no longer had, as Ed Spandau, the coolness, the perseverance, the faith necessary to discover the smallest fissure in a wall, the slightest jutting of a stone. Her hands trembled as she sounded the woodwork in the tapestry. Her sight was confused. Every instant she seemed to hear the steps of the chevalier upon the sand of the garden or upon the marble of the porch. Suddenly she seemed to hear them beneath her, as if he were ascending the staircase hidden under her feet, as if he approached by an invisible door, or as if, like a familiar spirit, he was about to pierce the wall in order to present himself before her eyes. She let fall her taper and fled to the bottom of the garden. The pretty stream which crossed it stopped her course. She listened and thought she heard someone walking behind her. Then she rather lost her self-possession and jumped into the skiff which the gardener used to bring sand and turf from the outside. Consuelo imagined that by unfastening it, she would land upon the other side, but the stream was rapid and left the enclosure under a low arch, which narrowed it and was closed by a grating. Drifting with the current, the skiff would in a few moments strike upon the grating. Consuelo saved herself from too severe a shock by rushing to the prow and extending her hands. A child of Venice and a child of the people could not be much embarrassed by this maneuver. But, strange chance, the grating yielded to her hand and opened at the simple impulse which the current gave to the skiff. Alas, thought Consuelo, perhaps this passage is never closed, for I am a prisoner on parole, and yet I fly, I violate my oath. But I do it only to seek protection and refuge among my hosts, not to abandon or betray them. She lived upon the bank with her an eddy in the water impelled her skiff, and buried herself in a close thicket. Consuelo could not run very quickly under those dark shades. The alley wound about as it became more and more narrow. The fugitive struck every moment against the trees and fell several times upon the turf. Still she felt hope returning to her soul. The darkness reassured her. It seemed impossible for Liverani to discover her there. After having walked quite a long while at random, she found herself at the foot of the hill covered with rocks, the uncertain outline of which displayed itself upon a gray and veiled sky. Quite a fresh stormy wind had risen, and the rain began to fall. Consuelo, not daring to retrace her steps, for fear that Liverani had discovered her footprints and was seeking her on the banks of the stream, ventured upon the somewhat rough path of the hill. She imagined that when she reached the top, she could discover the lights of the chateau, 
whatever was its position. But when she had climbed there, the lightning, which began to glare in the sky, showed before her the ruins of a vast edifice, an imposing and melancholy remnant of the Middle Ages. The rain compelled Consuela to seek a shelter there, but it was with difficulty that she found one. The towers had crumbled from top to bottom on the inside, and clouds of gerfalcons and tiercelets were startled by her approach, uttering that sharp and savage cry which resembles the voice of the spirits of the unhappy inhabitants of ruins. In the midst of rocks and briars, Consuelo, crossing the unroofed chapel, which displayed the skeletons of its dislocated ogives in the bluish glare of the lightning, reached the court, the pavement of which was covered by a short and smooth grass. She avoided a deep cistern, the opening of which was betrayed at the surface of the soil, only by the development of rich capillaries and a superb wild rose bush, the tranquil possessor of its inner wall. The mass of ruined buildings which surrounded this abandoned court presented the most fantastic appearance, and at each flash of lightning the eye could hardly understand those thin and distorted specters, all those incoherent forms of destruction, enormous chimney pieces still blackened beneath by the smoke of a hearth forever extinguished and issuing from the metal of walls denuded to a frightful height broken staircases, darting their spirals into space, as if to carry sorcerers to their aerial dance, whole trees installed and grown large in apartments still ornamented with the remains of frescoes, seats of stone in the deep embrasures of the windows, and always emptiness, within, as without, these mysterious retreats, the refuge of lovers in times of peace, Coverts of lookouts in town of danger. Finally, loopholes festooned with coquettish garlands, isolated gables rising in the air like obelisks, and doors filled to the cornice by accretions and ruins. It was a frightful and poetic spot. Consuelo felt herself affected by a kind of superstitious terror, as if her presence had profaned an enclosure reserved to funereal conferences or the silent reveries of the dead. In a serene night and a less agitated situation, she would have been able to admire the austere beauty of this monument. She would not perhaps have been classically moved to moralize upon the rigor of time and destiny which overthrow without pity the palace and the fortress and lay their ruins in the dust beside those of the hovel. The sadness which the ruins of those formidable abodes inspires is not the same in the imagination of the artist and in the heart of the practical man. But in that moment of trouble and of fear, and in that night of storm, Consuelo, not being sustained by the enthusiasm which had impelled her to serious enterprises, felt herself on the instant again become a child of the people trembling at the idea of seeing appear the phantoms of the night and fearing above all those of the ancient chatelaines, savage oppressors during their lives, desolate and menacing specters after their death. The thunder raised its voice, 
The wind brought down the bricks and mortar of the dismantled walls. The long branches of bramble and ivy wound like serpents around the battlements of the towers. Consuelo, still seeking a shelter from the rain and the falling fragments, penetrated beneath the vault of a staircase which seemed better preserved than the others. It was that of the great feudal tower, the oldest and most solid building of the edifice. After ascending twenty steps, she found a great octagonal hall which occupied the whole inside of the tower. The winding staircase was constructed, as in all buildings of this kind, within the wall eighteen or twenty feet thick. The vault of this hall had the interior shape of a beehive. There were no longer either doors or window sashes, but the openings were so narrow and deep that the wind could not rush into them. Consuela resolved to await the termination of the tempest in this place, and approaching a window, she remained more than an hour contemplating the imposing spectacle of a blazing sky and listening to the terrible voices of the storm. At last the wind subsided, the clouds dispersed, and Consuela thought of retiring. But on turning, she was surprised to see a light more permanent than that of the lightning prevail in the interior of the hall. That light, after having hesitated, so to speak, increased and filled the whole vault, while a slight crackling was heard in the chimney. Consuelo looked in that direction and saw under the half-arch of the ancient chimney an enormous throat yawning before her, a fire of branches which had kindled as of itself. She approached it and remarked half-consumed brands and all the remains of a fire formerly kept up and recently abandoned. Terrified by this circumstance, which revealed to her the presence of a host, Consuelo, who could see no furniture about her, quickly returned to the staircase and prepared to descend. When she heard voices below and the crackling produced by men's steps upon the rubbish scattered over it, her superstitious terrors were then changed into real apprehensions. That damp and devastated hall could be inhabited only by some ranger, perhaps as savage as his dwelling, perhaps drunken and brutal, and most probably less civilized and less respectful than honest Matthias. The footsteps approached quite rapidly. Consuelo hastily ascended the staircase in order not to be met by these problematic visitors and after having cleared twenty steps more, found herself on the level of the second story, where there was little probability that anyone would come, as it was entirely uncovered and consequently uninhabitable. Fortunately for her, the rain had ceased. She even saw some stars shining through the wild vegetation, which had invaded the top of the tower about ten fathoms above her head. A ray of light coming from beneath her feet was soon cast upon the dark walls of the edifice, and Consuelo, approaching with precaution, saw through a large crevice what was passing in the lowest story she had just left. Two men were in the hall, one walking and stamping his feet as if to warm himself, the other bent under the broad mantle of the chimney, busy renewing the fire which began to crackle on the hearth. At first she only distinguished their garments, which indicated a high position in society, and their hats, which concealed their faces. 
but the light of the fire having spread around, and he who stirred it with the point of his sword, having risen to hang his hat upon stone jutting from the wall. Consuelo saw locks of black hair which startled her, and the upper part of a face which almost drew from her a cry both of terror and of tenderness. He raised his voice, and Consuelo no longer doubted. It was Albert de Rudelstadt. Approach, my friend, said he to his companion, and warm yourself at the only chimney which remains standing in this vast manor house. This is but a sad resting place, Monsieur de Trenck, but you must have found worse in your rough travels. And often I have not found any, replied the Princess Amelia's lover. Really, this is more hospitable than it appears, and I should have accommodated myself in it more than once with pleasure. Aha, my dear Count, see you sometimes come to meditate upon the ruins and to perform your night watch in this haunted tower? I do often come here, in fact, and for more conceivable reasons. I cannot tell them to you now, but you shall know them by and by. I can guess them, however. From the top of this tower you can see into a certain enclosure. You can look down upon a certain pavilion. No, Trenck. The dwelling to which we refer is hidden behind the woods of the hill, and I cannot see it from here. But you can reach it in a few moments and shelter yourself here afterwards from inconvenient spies. Come, allow that just now, when I met you in the wood. I cannot allow anything, friend Trank, and you have promised not to question me. That is true. I ought to think of nothing but my delight at having found you in this immense park or rather in this forest, where I had so completely lost my way that without you I should have fallen into some picturesque ravine or got drowned in some limpid torrent. Are we far from the chateau? A quarter of a league at most. Dry your clothes, then, while the wind dries the paths of the park, and we will start again. This old chateau pleases me less than the new one, I confess and I understand very well why it has been abandoned to the birds. Still, I feel happy at finding myself alone with you, here at this hour and in this gloomy night. It recalls to me our first meeting in the ruins of an old abbey in Silesia, my initiation, the oaths which I pronounced between your hands, you, my judge, my examiner and master then, my friend and brother now. Dear Albert, what strange and fatal vicissitudes have since passed over our heads. Both of us dead to our families, to our countries, to our lovers. Perhaps, what will become of us, and what will henceforth be our life among men? Yours may yet be surrounded with splendor and filled with delights, my dear Trunk. The power of the tyrant who hates you has limits, thank God, upon the soil of Europe. But my mistress, Albert, is it possible that my mistress will remain eternally and uselessly faithful to me? You ought not to desire it, my friend, but it is only too certain that her passion is as lasting as her unhappiness. Speak to me then of her, Albert. More happy than I, you can see and hear her. You, I can do so no longer, dear Trank. Do not deceive yourself in that respect. The fantastic name and the strange personage of Trismegatus, under which I have been veiled, 
and which protected me for several years in my short and mysterious connections with the Palace of Berlin have lost their fascination. My friends will be as discreet and my dupes, since to serve our cause and your love I have very innocently been compelled to make some dupes, would not be more clear-sighted than in the past. But Frederick has got scent of a conspiracy, and I can no longer return to Prussia. My efforts there would be paralyzed by his mistrust, and the prison of Spandau would not open a second time for my escape. Poor Albert, you must have suffered in that prison as much as I in mine. More, perhaps. No, I was near her. I heard her voice. I labored for her deliverance. I neither regret having endured the horror of a dungeon, nor having trembled for her life. If I suffered for myself, I did not perceive it. If I suffered for her, I no longer remember it. She is saved, and she will be happy. By you, Albert? Tell me that she will be happy only by you and with you, or I no longer esteem her. I withdraw from her my admiration and my friendship. Do not speak thus, Trank. It is outraging nature, love and our lovers, and to wish to chain them to the name of a duty profitable to ourselves alone would be a crime and a profanation. I know it. And without aspiring to a like virtue with yours, I feel that if Amelia had withdrawn her word instead of confirming it to me, I should not, on that account, cease to love and to bless her for the days of happiness she has conferred upon me. But it is permitted me to love you more than I love myself, and to hate whomsoever does not love you. You smile, Albert. You do not understand my friendship. And I, I do not understand your courage. Ah, if it be true that she who has received your faith has become attached, before the expiration of her mourning, insensate, to one of our brothers, were he the most meritorious among us, and the most seductive man in the world, I could never forgive her. Do you forgive her if you can? Trank, Trank, you not know what you say. You do not understand, and I cannot explain. Do not judge her yet, that admirable woman. Hereafter you will know her. And what prevents your justifying her in my eyes? Speak then, to what purpose is so much mystery? We are alone here. Your confession cannot compromise her, and no oath that I know of compels you to conceal from me what we all suspect respecting your conduct. She no longer loves you. What is her excuse? But did she ever love me? That is her crime. She never understood you. She could not, and I, I could not reveal myself to her. Besides, I was ill. I was crazy. No one loves crazy people. They are pitied and feared. You have never been crazy, Albert. I have never seen you so. The wisdom and strength of your understanding have always astonished me, on the contrary. You have seen me firm and master of myself in action. You have never seen me in the agony of repose, in the tortures of discouragement. Do you then know what discouragement is? I should never have thought it. That is because you do not see all the dangers, all the obstacles, all the vices of our enterprise. 
You have never been to the bottom of that abyss into which I have plunged my whole soul and cast all my existence. You have seen only the chivalric and generous side. You have embraced only the easy labors and the cheering hopes. That is because I am less great, less enthusiastic, and since I must say it, less fanatical than you, noble Count. You have wished to drain the cup of zeal even to the dregs, and when the bitterness has suffocated you, you have doubted of heaven and of men. Yes, I have doubted, and I have been very cruelly punished. And now, do you doubt yet? Do you suffer still? Now, I hope, I believe, I act, I feel strong, I feel happy. Do you not see joy radiating from my face? Do you not feel transport overflowing from my bosom? And yet you are betrayed by your mistress. What do I say? By your wife. She was never either the one or the other. She never owed me. She does not now owe me anything. She does not betray me. God sends her love, the most celestial of the graces from on high, to reward her for having had a moment's pity for me on my deathbed. And I, to thank her for having closed my eyes, for having wept over me, for having blessed me upon the threshold of eternity, which I thought I was passing. Should I claim a promise torn from her generous compassion, from her sublime charity? Should I say to her, Woman, I am your master. You belong to me by the law, by your imprudence and your error. You shall submit to my embraces, because in a day of separation you deposited a kiss of farewell upon my frozen brow. You shall forever place your hand in mine, follow my steps, endure my yoke, break in your bosom a growing love, stifle insurmountable desires, be consumed by affection for another in my profane arms, upon my selfish and cowardly heart. Oh, Trank, do you think I could be happy when acting thus? Would not my life be a punishment even more bitter than hers? Is not the suffering of the slave the curse of the master? Great God, what being is so vile, so brutal, as to be proud and transported at a love which is not shared, at a fidelity against which the heart of the victim revolts? Thank heaven, I am not that being. I never will be. I was going this evening to find Consuelo. I meant to tell her all these things. I meant to restore to her her liberty. I did not meet her in the garden where she usually walks, and then the storm came and deprived me of the hope of seeing her descend. I did not wish to penetrate to her apartments. I should have entered them by the right of a husband. The mere shudder of her horror, the mere paleness of her despair, would have caused me a pain which I had not the resolution to brave. And did you not meet also in the darkness the black mask of that Leverani? Who is that Leverani? Do you not know the name of your rival? Leverani is a false name. Do you know him, that man, that happy rival? No, but you ask me with a strange look. Albert, I think I understand you. You forgive your unfortunate wife. You abandon her. You ought to do so. But you will punish, I hope, the villain who has seduced her. Are you sure that he is a villain? What? 
the man to whom had been confided her deliverance and the guardianship of her person during a long and perilous journey, he who ought to have protected her, to have respected her, not to have addressed a single word to her, not to have shown her his face. A man invested with the powers and with the blind confidence of the invisibles, your brother in arms, and by oath, doubtless, as I am. Ah, if your wife had been confided to me, Albert, I should not even have thought of this criminal treachery of making myself beloved by her. Trank, once again, you know not what you say. Only three men among us know who this Liverani is and what is his crime. In a few days you will cease to blame and to curse that happy mortal to whom God in his goodness, in his justice perhaps, has given the love of Consuelo. Strange and sublime man, you do not hate him? I cannot hate him. You will not disturb his happiness? On the contrary, I labor ardently to assure it, and I am neither sublime nor strange in this. You will soon laugh at the praises you bestow upon me. What, you do not even suffer? I am the most happy of men. In that case you love but little, or you love no more. Such a heroism is not in human nature. It is almost monstrous, and I cannot admire what I do not understand. Stop, Count. You laugh at me, and I am very simple. Now I guess at last. You love another, and you bless Providence which frees you from your engagements with the first by rendering her unfaithful. I must open my heart to you. You compel me to it, Baron. Listen, it is a whole history, a whole romance which I have to relate to you. But it is cold here. This fire of brushwood cannot warm these old walls. And besides, I fear that in a little while they will unpleasantly recall to you those of Glatz. The weather has become clear. We can resume our walk to the chateau. And since you leave it at break of day, I do not wish to prolong your vigil too much. As we go on, I will tell you a strange tale. The two friends resumed their hats after having shaken off the moisture and giving some kicks to the brands to extinguish them. They left the tower arm in arm. Their voices were lost in the distance, and the echoes of the old manor house soon ceased to repeat the low sounds of their steps upon the wet grass of the court. End of chapter 29